Welcome to Deep Natter. Before we start the show, I want to take just a minute to thank you. For listening, yes, but especially since episode 19, so many of you have written in to share some of the things that you're going through, and that's really why we put these out, in the hope that they will connect and resonate with you and maybe let you know that you're not alone. I'd also like to thank you for the outpouring of support since I added the donate button to my website. I can't tell you how much it means to me. And one of the unexpected responses to it has been this burst of creative energy I'm feeling. It inspires me to want to do more of what I'm already doing. So thank you. This episode started with me asking Sean about how he edits his videos, but it turned into a larger conversation about how connecting with an audience is such a key component to why we do what we do. Here we go. Hey, when you edit, when you're doing um, like interviews with other people, do you do the the strip silence so you're only left with with vocal parts, or do you leave the waveform intact? Uh, I, I don't kill ambient. Like, are you talking about sampling room noise and then canceling it out, kind of thing? Kind of, yeah. There's a what a lot of podcasters do. There there are features that will actually cut away blocks of silence, so then you're you're left with individual blocks of vocal but nothing in between. Oh. They say it's faster and easier to edit that way. That it automatically cuts out those spaces for you? Yes. No, I wouldn't do that. Because I feel like when, when I'm interviewing someone on video, there are amazing moments where they stop and pause and you watch them think. I don't want those gone. Right. You know, I want to choose right. to keep those. I might choose to lose it because it's too long. Like the last one I did with somebody, he did leave like long gaps where he thought about things. And some of those I did cut out. Mm-hmm. But I also, sometimes it's a poignant moment and no, I, I definitely wouldn't want anything jumping in there and chopping that out for me. Yeah. I love that about audio as well. I mean, I, I leave all sorts of gaps in, especially on what, you know, when we're talking, I like hearing a guest kind of churning through. I like hearing that silence of them looking for an answer so that it's not an answer that's right off the cuff because in general, it means that it's not a question that was expected. Well, I mean, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but like I, I seem to remember you saying there are times as well where you'll add space to an interview, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, that's really cool because it paces it. It like it like it gives it. It's I think that's taking creative control of your of your of your edit as well. Maybe you do need a an in breath to take in what they just said before it rushes on to the next thing. I like that. I think it's I think not enough people think about doing that. I try to think about them almost like a radio play. Yeah. You know, and I, and I try to, I try to think about them in terms of rhythm. Sometimes I'll tighten things up. Sometimes I'll loosen them up and I'll expand it. And as you said, uh, I'll, I'll drop in more space to give me, if I'm listening back to it, even though I was in the conversation, if I'm listening back to it and I want a moment to, to kind of listen to what that person has just said. And I do it with you sometimes mm. where you'll say something and it will land so well. I just, I don't want to rush into something else. I want to let people listen to that moment for a second and, and reflect on it, even if it's just for a beat or two before allowing the next portion of the conversation to continue. And I think there's value there. I think it, it, it allows us to sit with 
some of the the things that we talk about and it and again all of these things i i hope contribute to making these things feel like conversations and less like interviews regardless of whether it's you and i talking or or you know me talking to someone else i think that audio can and should have a rhythm to it yeah but for me maybe it's a bad analogy for me kind of what you're doing which i love is because conversations have a particular rhythm to them and often you jump in to say the next thing quickly to keep things moving along, but that's not necessarily the best way for a third party to listen. Right. And you're almost, you're almost making conversations more cinematic by creating space, less video, more cinema, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. but in an mm-hmm. audio space. So you're going, well, this, 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 I could, I could hand you this as it was captured that might feel a bit rushed conversational, like you're just eavesdropping. And maybe that's what you want to do on a particular interview because that was the tone of it. But maybe on another one you go, this is a bit more weighty, but it trips along a little too quickly. And I want to make this feel a little more cinematic and stick some space in it. I love that you give yourself the freedom to do that. I think it's really cool. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there are times when, you know, you and I will be in a, a, a flow, if you will, and one of us will be excited and say something over the other. Most of the time it's me talking over you because I don't shut up when I'm, when I probably should. Oh, please. But <laughs> I, I'm, I'm grateful that we record on multiple tracks because I can stretch that out. Yeah. I can, I, I will, I will move me out of the way so that you can finish. And we're not then talking over one another and then I'll come in or I might even just take my response out completely and just sit with, with what you've said or vice versa mm. and then pick up the conversation, you know, a, a half second or a second later and just let it sit. I love the challenge of it. You know, it's something that I work really hard on. I hope that I'm getting better at it. I hope that I'm recognizing rhythms and cadences and patterns. And it's, you know, it's one of the reasons that I have that pre-call conversation uh, before I record with someone for Process Driven, because I want to get a sense of how they speak. I wanted to get a sense of the rhythm of their speech, not necessarily match that, but adjust accordingly so that, how can I say it? Well, I, I guess it goes back to making someone comfortable. You know, if they speak very slowly and methodically and carefully, and I'm rapid fire, rapid fire, they're going to be uncomfortable and vice versa. If they're really on a roll trying to get something out and I'm very slow and methodical and they're going to be uncomfortable. They're going to feel like they're rushing me. So if I can try and recognize those rhythms and cadences and, and at least get in, in their wheelhouse, I think it makes for a better listening experience. Yeah, that's great. I, I don't know if enough people think about that, especially like the, I think the big time interviewers are like, I do it this way. You're lucky to talk to me and you're going to get what I get every time. I, I, I think it's a rarer thing for an interviewer to go, I'm going to let my guest set the pace and the tone, which is lovely. And because I think you'll get the best out of them if you do that, because you'll make them feel comfortable and they'll be able to. I mean, I always find it really intimidating, honestly, as, a, as an introvert, getting onto a podcast or an interview with somebody where they are like, you know, over enthused disney channel hyped up extrovert and i'm like oh i can't match this i can't keep up with this and then they're trying to i like, can't get up there no, I can't. Yeah. and they're like pushing you to like come on we've got to give an audience a good thing you know and i'm like just kill me now because like i, I can't i can't go there with you it's it's I, I would have to fake it to do it and i don't feel comfortable doing that and i can feel their frustration like because they're on sh- they're they're doing their show it's showtime for them 
and and, right. and I don't fit in your show, but you you might want to talk to me for something. I find that keenly uncomfortable. So I, the fact that you consider that, I think, is is unfortunately rare. But I'm I'm glad there are people out there who do it. Have you got like an example of of somewhere where you did adjust with and like how what adjusting looked like? Um, you don't have to give a name. I mean, I, I yeah. I mean, yes. Nothing that you, I don't think that you would notice, and maybe it becomes more subconscious after that initial call. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, in fact, I had a, a call with someone yesterday who was going to be a guest on uh, Process Driven next year, and they had an expectation. Maybe expectation is the wrong word, although maybe not. They had an expectation of what I was going to want to talk about or what I was going to ask about. And I didn't end up asking about anything during this initial call. We just had a great conversation. And as I've told you before, sometimes these conversations last 10, 15 minutes. It's just to say hello. That's and, not true and, ever. <laughs> I'm going to ask you, when, how no, often, when, name your time. In my head, it's true, Sean. Say, in my head, it's that true. That might be your intention, but I've never heard you have a pre-call of 10 minutes. It's always an hour plus. That's rubbish. Well, yeah. And that's what happened yesterday exactly. is, is we ended up going for, for an hour and and only briefly touching on ostensibly why I reached out to this person in the first place, because we were just talking about life. We were talking about our families. We were talking about pets. We were talking about, you know, growing up. And at one point they asked, so how is the actual, you know, show different? What do you want to do for that? And I said, well, it's pretty much this. And they went, there was this silence and they went, really? Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, we could just talk. And they were like, oh my gosh, I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm so excited about this yeah. now. You know, because there is this, I don't know, there, there's an expectation, like you, like you said, that the, the host or the, the, the person, you know, doing the show is going to do it their way. And I, I try very hard not to do it my way. I try not to have a way other than to be interested and be curious and, and make space. If we don't end up talking about the, uh, the vocation or, or creative pursuit that this person is pursuing, I don't care doesn't matter to me in the least. I want whoever you are to be comfortable telling your story and, and to be comfortable having a conversation because that's going to be better for you than to feel like you're being sort of interrogated about what you do, I think. Yeah, I, I, I hear that in what you do. Like, and there's, there's, there are a few people who do that really well, you among them, but then they're, they're few and far between. And, and the, where I always notice it is if is if an actor is out on a press junket because there's a movie out. You, you, there's a bunch of interviews that get dropped in a very short space of time. Um, but it's also where podcasters will also jump on and grab a slot because they, those people have suddenly come out of their homes and are willing to talk to people again. And there, there are particular people, I'm trying to think, like um, there's a comedian, Pete Holmes, who I think does quite a good job of exactly what you do, which is uh, you, you can tell like at the end of their interviews that that they actually enjoyed themselves and it was a break from the press junket because even though they have publicists sitting in the corner like giving them the raised eyebrow that they should be talking about the movie the whole time neither the person being interviewed nor the interviewer cares they're just having a good conversation and and those are the ones that the interviewer enjoys 
that the person being interviewed, that's their favorite of the day. And as a listener, those are my favorite ones. And that's exactly what right. you do is that you don't have, you don't have an agenda by the sound of it. When you interview people, you just find them interesting because you're naturally curious. And then wherever yeah, the conversation goes, that's yeah. where it goes, you know, it's, and that for me makes you really, really good at what you do. It's why, it's why if anyone asks like, Hey, what podcast should I be listening to in that creative world? It's, it's you, Ibarian X and Neil James. Those are the, those are the three for me that, because you are genuinely curious people and you, you don't follow formula and you, you right. just, you Thank just you. care about what they have to say. Like that, that for me is what I'm looking for from an interviewer, not those like the pat questions right. or, or the, the, the list of things you can tell that they had to get through. Cause that's what they contract you wanted to talk about, but just conversations that surprise you because uh, you've got an open person on one end of the interview and an interviewer who's just genuinely curious and will have the courage to ask the question that we're all thinking. And you do that incredibly well. And and it doesn't have to be like a gotcha type thing. No. You know, it doesn't have to be, I, I don't want to catch somebody off guard. That's not interesting to me. I'm just, I'm gonna jump where in. they feel uncomfortable. I'm going to jump in because that's, that's exactly, you, you have, uh, I'm, I'm, forgive me for blowing smoke up your ass, but I, if we're on this topic, I have to do it. Like this is, this is the two sides of the coin that make you really good is one, you are genuinely curious, but the second is that you're incredibly gracious. So there's no, and, and by gracious, I mean, like, gracious is often like a, a weird word. Like it's sort of this, you, you know, you float through a room like a ballerina. You're very, very poised. I I, well, I do I, actually. I, I, do. My little toe not, shoes are fabulous. I'm not saying you don't, but like grace, <laughs> great. Like it's one of these old church words that I really like because grace is like when you start unpacking the word, it just means undeserved favor. Like that, that, that you're, you favor somebody and you, you want to give them things, even though they did nothing to deserve it. That's how you treat people in an interview for, for my ears is, is there's no, there's no got you for you because you, you don't want to catch them out. You want to give them opportunities to celebrate themselves. And that's being that gracious to people, giving them space to celebrate them and never trying to put them in an uncomfortable position, but just trying to, to dig a little deeper. You're very, very sensitive with that. And I think that's what makes you very good at what you do. I want you to forget that this is being recorded or that this is a, you know, a, a thing. I just want it to be, you know, I just want it to be a conversation. And you know, I haven't watched the, the Beatles documentary yet, but a friend of mine said, called me specifically and said, you have to listen to this or you have to watch this because it is a masterclass in creativity and you are going to love this. And I know that they know that they're being filmed, yeah. but he was saying that at one point, uh, there was one point in, in particular, and have you seen this thing yet? Have you I've seen, seen the all first three? two hours? I mean, it's eight hours of footage. Honestly, I was, I was getting overloaded after the two hours, but yeah, I have seen it the first couple of hours. Okay. So uh, apparently there is a point in the, the show where John and Paul leave to go off and have a conversation and unbeknownst to them, the table that they're sitting at has been mic'd. Uh -huh. So this conversation that was never meant to be recorded or captured or shared was. Yeah. And the interaction between them is apparently just really terrific. And I want to see it for many reasons, but that's one of the reasons I want to see it because it's, it's when we, when we let our guard down, when we, when we don't think about being filmed or photographed. I mean, you do this with your portraits. You, you make people feel, I would assume anyway, I've never been in a portrait session with you, but I've heard you speak about it. And 
you make people feel comfortable enough where the camera is no longer threatening. Mm -hmm. The camera is no longer intimidating. The camera is no longer really even in the room. It's just you connecting with that other person. Yeah. You have to move it out of the way. Yeah. And I think that is so important in conversation. And I think some of the podcasts that I listen to and have listened to for years, somebody asked me the other day, what was the first podcast I ever listened to? And I think it was Radio Lab. Mm. And uh, I mean, Jad Abumrad is just a master Mm. at production, but he's also a master at being interested and creating space and, and allowing people to feel important and heard and their story has weight. And I, I have learned a ton by listening to people like that um, because it removes the barrier or the hierarchy, I guess, between interviewer and interviewee, and it becomes just two people discussing something. Yeah. And the one person who is supposedly in this position of, of power or authority or, you know, whatever as the host just becomes an interested party in what you're, what you're saying, what you're trying to communicate. We bear witness to your story mm-hmm. and, and that's a pleasure. That's a, that's a, well, it's an honor to be able to hear someone's story, to be able to be um, in a space where someone is comfortable enough to share a piece of their life with you. That's an honor. Yeah. The, the other interesting thing about that uh, Beatles talk, just going back a little bit, I think, and, and which, which bears you out more than just them miking up that table. They mentioned a couple of times in those first couple of hours that they know they're filming this stuff, but they're not really sure if it's ever going to be used. And you can tell that all their interactions are like, this will never be used for anything. And by the way, they were right almost because it's sat in a vault for how many decades? Right. Like it, it was never, that it was like, let's just record it and see, maybe we can get something out of it. But I think most of their interactions that are, I, I don't get the fact that they're holding back at all. In fact, there are plenty of disagreements and honest things said that you go like, no, they, they meant everything they're saying. Yeah, so I, I, I would imagine even going to the other room was just for the sake of having a private conversation because of the people in the room, not even because of the cameras. And, and you're right, it has a tone the whole way through because of that of, oh, we're being, we're being let in on something that's a privilege, which I think is the quality you're going after in an interview. Like this is, this is access and honesty that you, you, you don't deserve, but here we go, it's a gift. You, you're allowed to sit on, in on this because this is open honesty and intimacy. Intimacy, it is. That's, I suppose that's what it is in an interview context. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, that would be a huge, you know, compliment and, and I would love it if somebody felt that way about it. Um, that's what these are really, aren't they as well? I mean, we're not, we're not doing an interview, we're doing a conversation, but these are conversations that we have every week anyway. And yeah. we just shoot <laughs> often multiple times a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, sometimes <laughs> multiple times a day. Um, but, but that's, um, but I mean, that's, we really don't have a lot of friends. But that's, that's like, you know, uh, the choice to share this with people is an intimacy choice. It's saying like, Hey, this is our, this is our friendship. This is how we talk about things. You're not owed this, but, but we, we like this and, and we want to share it with you. We're not threatened by anything. We don't need to keep any of this a secret, but we think there's things in here that might help other people too, because we're trying to work things out and we're happy to bring you in and be a part of this. And yeah. hopefully for those certainly reading some of the responses and emails and messages I'm getting about this is, is that's what this feels like to people. And that, that's the best compliment to me is like, you're, you're, you're letting us in on, 
on uh, things and you're being incredibly open about the struggles as well as the successes and that helps me on my own journey that's the good stuff for me absolutely and and we have a very I, i'm so grateful for this i'm glad you brought this up because we have such an engaged audience i was telling sean earlier because we we talked this morning for a little bit uh somebody responded i i posted a, a shot of these new paintings that i'm working on and uh somebody responded to it. And one of the things that they said was, was, uh, uh, I, I really love your designing with paint, <laughs> you know? And yeah. I was like, ah, there it is. You got you. There it is. You got you. <laughs> so it's, um, it's, you know, it's one of those other things. It's a, it's, you said it earlier, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to get to be a part of, of something where I don't think what we're doing is simply content. No. I think there's a, a, a growing number of listeners who feel the same way that there is something, this is community. This is, this is, uh, uh, a two way street and we are starting to get more and more longer emails or messages. People are feeling comfortable. They're opening up, they're sharing more and more of their own lives. And I am so grateful for that. That is not wasted on us at all. It's not lost on us at all. No. What do, you, what do you think? Just an idea, checking it out. What do you think? Have you got a way that people can send you actual questions of things they're struggling with? Because we could start throwing those in if you think you'd like to sort of build up the community side of. How do you feel about that? We could do a shared Gmail address. We could do like deepnatter.gmail.com or something. Yeah. I'm sure that's not taken. And just both of us have, have login credentials for it and, yeah. you know, build it that way if that works for you. Sounds good. I mean, I, I really do like the community side of this and I do get a lot of feedback on these conversations and people saying how they're connecting with them. And it would be nice to hear from, from some of those people from time yeah. to time, especially with questions that maybe they've heard us talk about something and had a burning question that we didn't really hit that we, Absolutely. That we could pick it up next time and might be quite interesting to chuck in. Well, then the answers help multiple people instead of just responding to one person. Yeah. You know, there's the potential there for, for a response to connect on, on multiple levels. I would, I would love to even go one better and see if this resonates with you. Most everybody has a smartphone and regardless of whether you're iOS or Android, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that Android has a voice memo app. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Would you be interested in getting voice memos from people? Mm. Record a, record yourself asking a question or, or, or talking through something. If it's, you know, a minute or two or whatever, email us that as an attachment we can cut those questions in on the show if you're comfortable with it. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. And then we can respond in, you know, not real time, but, but you know, you can then listen to that person's question or listen to their comment and, and build some sort of community and interactivity that way. I, I think that would be super that. cool. Yeah, it's much better that because we can actually hear your voice as well. But maybe we just say like, try and keep it under 60 seconds so we don't have to do too much chopping up. Yeah or anything if it gets a bit long-winded. So try and, you know, introduce yourself, who you are, what you do, what your actual question or issue or thing you want to share or response to something we've talked about in, in your thing. Just yeah. try and keep it reasonably brief so that we can actually play it in full and we don't need to cut anything out. I think that's a great idea. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I love it. Have we got a way that people can send us those now? Hold on one second. Let's, let's just keep talking for a second. I'm going to put a marker down. And let me see if uh, deep matter at Gmail is available. I'll do, I'll just set it up right now. Cool. Look at you go <laughs> in real time. It's happening now. 
All right, so it didn't quite happen in real time, but we've gone ahead and set up deepnatter at gmail.com that you can use to send us questions or comments, or better still, one of the audio notes that we mentioned. If you do decide to send an audio note, just try to keep it relatively brief. And if you can export as an MP3 to save file size, that would be great. If not, go ahead and attach a WAV or an AIFF file. Also, unless you say otherwise, by sending us one of these audio notes, you're giving us permission to potentially use it on an episode of the show. Sound good? All right, back to the show. What else should we talk about today? <laughs> um, I've, I've started to, I just started now um, sequencing the next collection book for next year. Uh, which is good. Oh, so, that's exciting. Yeah, I, I usually send off about this time of the year for... Um, just little prints so I can sort of physically start laying out the images. So just before this, I was starting to sequence the black and white section, which is the first half of the book. Uh, yeah, it's interesting because I can, it, having these collections is actually really good because I can, I can see a, a movement every year. And uh, it's kind of this time of the year where it's sort of a marker where you are collecting everything you've done in the year and trying to select the best and then work on a sequence that makes them look good. Like it, it mm-hmm. kind of helps you realize how far you moved in the past year. And then when I go look at back at books from like four years ago, I'm going, oh gosh, yeah, there has been a lot of movement. So it's quite time of the year. Interesting. What is your actual process? Do you do the the Joshua Jackson kind of print them all out and live with them for a little while? Or do you do it all electronically? How is your sequence process handled? I have to do it physically. I can't, I can't drag folders around on a desktop to sequence, you know, thumbnails. Yeah. It doesn't work for me at all. So I do get, I basically get, because there's 90 images in the book every year. So I basically print out my top 150. uh, And I've got 500 images in a folder from the year that I sort of like or think have potential. So I basically whittle it down a few weeks before December to sort of 150-ish. And then I send off to get those 150 printed. They arrive today. And then I start sequencing them down, choosing 45 color, 45 black and white, and working on a flow because it's also got sections in the book as well. So it's working out groupings of black and white images that work together. So this year, for example, there's, there's still some urban stuff from being in cities, but there's also more country stuff. And there's also going to be a whole self-portrait section as well, because that was a big theme earlier in the year, and I made videos around that. So it's, it's kind of whatever came up in the year, mm-hmm. but trying to find those strong segments in the book that have their own flow, and then working out that sort of front-to-back sequencing and pairings with images that sit side by side on pages, like that's, there's so much to think about. It's like a big jigsaw puzzle, you know? You've got all the pieces there. Right, right. But there's no right answer. You've just got to find, as you slowly move those things around, you've got to find what works best. So the, the way I've done it in the past is usually what I'll do is I'll do, I'll do a section in a day. I'll, I'll lay it out and I'll just walk back downstairs a few times during the day and look at it again and then go, no, that's something there in that section isn't right. And I've already messed with it like five or six times. I'll keep going back down, keep going back down. I'll probably leave it up overnight and do a bit tomorrow. And at some point I'll feel like, yeah, that's the strongest flow and selection I can, I can get in this, in this section. And I'll take a photograph of that laid out on the floor and then I can go and. Oh, so you do lay them out on the floor, not on a wall. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, it's too big on a wall. Yeah. It's too big on a wall. Cause it's 90 images. It's a lot, you know, really fill a big wall. So yeah, just, just on the floor. And it also means I can quickly move stuff around on the floor as well. 
Have you had one of the uh, Martin Rotz moments where the, the door has, has created enough wind to blow your selections all over and you end up liking it? Not yet, but thank you for making that suggestion and freaking me out. <laughs> what, I, what I do is actually every time I have a selection that I like, I photograph it mm. and then I come back later. And if I, I, I make a selection that's better, I'll photograph that and delete the previous one. Um, just so I, I've always got the latest selection as a photo on my phone as well. How big are the prints that you have done? A little five by fives. Ah, okay. Um, yeah. And then uh, I, yeah, once I've got that photograph of the selection, then I go back to the computer and I pull those images into their own folder and I pull every single one into Photoshop and I make sure that the contrast and colors are all accurate throughout. And that's where I make little tweaks as well because I know also I print on uncoated paper, mm-hmm. which in this case, which is, it desaturates the colors right, and it lifts the blacks to kind of a charcoal. So I, I make little corrections throughout the images to make sure that they're consistent with each other as sets, but also trying to take into account what I know the printing process will do to the images. And then, yep, throw them into uh, InDesign. I actually have a friend who designs my book every year. Well, he designed the first one and now it's just a template. So I send everything to him sequenced. Uh, when it's ready and he puts it all together, makes sure the file is, because I'm not really that au fait with InDesign. Right. And then he sends it back and I send it off to the printers, hopefully before the end of the month. And then either before the end of the year or early next year, that those prints or those books will be sent down to the fulfillment center in Bristol. And then I can set them live and they start going out. Now this is number five. Is there going to be a sleeve ever produced? Yeah, you see, I'm thinking about that. I love that idea, like a box that you can kind of fit all yeah. five volumes in nicely. So I, I did say that I'd never do previous collections. I'd never reprint them. Uh-oh. But what I'm thinking Sean. now... Sean. <laughs> well, no, what I'm thinking now is like maybe it would be a good idea. So what I might do this year is I'll, I'll do the normal print run in January. Mm-hmm. And then what I might do is is it'll it's yeah i mean it, it it just depends on demand as well because it's going to cost a lot to do and i need to make sure people will be keen on this but what i might do is print a limited run of all five years again um in a sleeve which i have to, yeah and then get a box oh like, i love that them. idea i love yeah. that so the first five years is a box set and have those as limited run signed edition things um but it, again like i have to I have to make sure there's enough need for that because I can't I can't ever print these books in like a run of a hundred because it just isn't cost effective as right, a, right. a per book price then. So I have to do it like five hundred minimum I have to do. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a lot to do for a box set which which I can't charge, you know, a small amount for. Each of the individual books are twenty pounds. So would would you do it at a hundred or would you do it at more or le- like what where, what's your thinking around it? I'd probably do it at a hundred, but then have them signed and additioned, like mm-hmm. signed and numbered. Um, so actually it is the same price as buying each of the books individually, but you're getting it signed and numbered. So you're getting extra value onto that. I think that's what I'm thinking at the moment. And I might throw in like, I might throw in like a little sign print in that as well. See, I love that. Yeah. But I'm going to have to do that on my own probably, which means it's going to be a lot of work sometime in the middle of the year because sending that down to a fulfillment center and trusting them to kind of package them all those things as well. I, I think I'm going to have to bring that back in house and do it as a smaller, 
thing. But I do love the idea of it. I mean, I want to see that in the world. You know, that's I do too. Cool. And there are there are so many people who are collecting these things as well. You know, mm-hmm. they they have been trying to collect every year. Um, so maybe what I'll do is I'll do I'll do if I if I do order five hundred, I will do. 300 or 200 as box sets and i'll put 300 of each back into stock so those who want to catch up on previous editions they've missed can do that mm-hmm. and then uh carry on from there i mean it's it's crazy to get to five honestly like i don't know how many i thought i'd do when i did the first one i i hoped it would go for a while but i wasn't sure uh i wasn't sure it'd work the first year i thought it might be a complete failure but you know i'm five years down the track still doing it you've grown every year though by quite a yeah. large jump actually yeah, you just don't know, though, do you? It's always mm-hmm. a guess. Like, will people will people buy it in the first year? I had no idea if people would be interested in it. And then will people get bored of it after a few years and not bother? But there's kind of a lovely anticipation now. People get to this time of year and they've already started messaging me going, when's Collection 5 out? Yeah. You know, which is, a, which is great to... I think that's a lot of what you need to get good at as, as an artist who sells work is creating expectation in an audience. This is coming, you know? And because this thing is annual it comes out the same time every year and they're numbered so it's collection one collection two collection three people do want to get the next one because they realize it's a series of products right so yeah i mean it's it's great it's great and i love seeing them in the world i love seeing the progression i love i love having them out on a table every now and again the last five years and going where was i you know because each of those photographs more than just a, a photography progression for me they're memories every single one of them sure i know what i was doing when i was there and they've become amazing little time capsules for me. Plus I obviously pepper quotes throughout the books as well, which are quotes pulled directly from the videos that I made during that year. So it also reminds me what I said in that year or what I was thinking in that year. So for me personally, they they mean a lot. They're, they're really cool to have. All right. Two questions mm. <laughs> for now. <laughs> I'm sure there will be more. <laughs> will the sleeve visually, will the sleeve echo the books? in terms of white with black text, or do you reverse out the sleeve and make it black with white text? I was thinking reversed. Oh, I love that. Um, I love that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good answer. But, but I don't, but I don't know because I've also talked to, talked to, uh, my designer friend Vlar mm-hmm. and, and his, his gut is it will look really nice as an all white box set. And I, I can see that as well. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure which way I'll go. I would make the case, and I know you didn't ask, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I would make the case for the black because it sets it apart. It's the only way that then it would be a black box. If you've got all five of them next to one another, it's still going to be, from a distance anyway, a white volume, right? Or or how about I just go, I go black books in a black box just for the box. <gasps> Shut up. That would be so cool. <laughs> <laughs> so then it is proper limited edition black covers black box all right i just swooned a little bit <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's your that's your that's the designer in you like that's the kind of things that tickle designers Oof. Oh. yeah okay so yeah. part two of that question does five mark anything special for you in the sense that would you would you change the design at all moving forward into six does it does it warrant a change or do you continue visually as it appears one through five i i thought about that long and hard actually there was a stage where i felt like i wanted to change but the more time goes on the more i just like i feel like the look of it is sort of the branding of it as well Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and 
and it's recognizable to some people. And I don't know if I break it up because it's so minimal, the design anyway. Sure. If I break it up and go to something else, it, it creates a better and a worse either way, you know, which however you feel about what came before or what comes after. Yeah. And I don't know if, if, if that's the, what I want to do. I don't know if I want to start a discussion between people. Oh, I prefer the old covers or I like the new covers or, you know, I don't want to do that. And I feel that the design of the book is so tastefully minimal mm-hmm. that the images do the talking. And I, I like that too. Anything, if I changed it, it would be more complicated and I'd be trying to make it more elaborate. And I think that might be a mistake. If I go to like a new design that's also minimal, I don't see a point really. Right, 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 right. I love the idea of black special edition. Oof. Mm-hmm. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> PayPal yeah, Sean so at... <laughs> Yeah, maybe that's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's uh, maybe that's the way to go with that. Yeah. Although, then does that does that mess you up? Because you you would only do say two fifty black and two fifty white yeah, to get would, to that five hundred. It would ruin it for people who are buying the individuals. Yeah, yeah. But it would encourage. I, I mean, come on. You and I both know that there are people who would rebuy the special edition just to have the special edition all all five like the omnibus edition i know a lot of people who are in comics who so. you know they'll buy the omnibus edition of whatever comic they happen to be reading just to have that one volume with everything in it yeah i think so and i, I mean it's the kind of thing i do honestly and what I, i'd usually do is i buy the box set and then i give my copies away to someone who i knew would like them yeah um because i'd just rather have a neat box set yeah. But yeah, I don't I don't know. I'm I love sure. that. Idea. I, I'm still toying with the idea. I mean, I'm going to get the first print run of well, the the print run for collection 5. I'll get that out in January. And uh yeah, I'll I'll have a think about it and work out as well because it's going to be it's going to be a big outlay of cash from my side to actually get that print run done. Mm-hmm. So, seeing how collection 5 sells and making sure people are still interested and because again, like why wouldn't they be? But you you do doubt every year. You're like, sure, are you guys still there? Do you still want this? And then they go, yeah, 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 we still want this. And I'm like, okay, okay, cool. Then you get your confidence back. You go, okay, maybe it is. Maybe it is a good idea to do this box set. Maybe that would be quite cool. Um, there's probably a cool video in that as well. Like, oh yeah, to make thinking about like like flicking through those books and sort of talking through how my photography's changed. Because interestingly, there's actually a big link now between the first book and the last book, this book I'm putting together now, in that I was traveling a lot more in that first year, Mm -hmm. uh, working for this company still. And there was less of the street photography that I did in those middle years and more kind of out and about, almost like rural landscape, different, different. There was a, a mix of things in there. And I think I'm coming back to that as in there'll always be the kind of more contrasty, street scene stuff that I'm I'm probably better known for, but I'm now, because of the move that I've made, also experimenting with uh photographing where I am, which which isn't, you know, glass and steel skyscrapers and hard light. It's sure. it's, it's different and it's and I I like what's happening with my photography. You know, I mean not everyone does. I had a message yesterday from somebody saying, hey, Sean, I really, really love what you do, but your landscape photography really needs some work. I'm going to go, well, okay, that's okay. I'm all right with that. <laughs> but, 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 but personally, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm uh, like, I think everything we do needs some work, right? We're always, we're always trying to develop and work on stuff. And, and I don't think of myself as a landscape photographer anyway. And I think anytime you change and do something new, 
um, especially if you're stepping into arena, an arena with people who have been doing it for 20 years, of course you're not going to be as good as them. But sure. my, my goal is always to be as well-rounded as I can possibly be, which means doing as many different sorts of photography as I possibly can and being at least competent in all of it. So, so doing that sort of photography, I'm, I'm really enjoying um, and, and I love that it's part of what I offer as well, that I'm not a one trick pony, that I mm-hmm. have many bows to my strings. And some, some of those, some of those strings are, are stronger than others. And, and that's always the way it would be. How could it be any other way? But I always want to keep working at all of them and maybe making sure that even though portrait photography might be where I feel most competent, that I still work on everything else because I, I want to be able to take a photograph at a drop of a hat if a scene presents itself and I don't just make an excuse, oh, I'm not very good at that and walk away. Right. I want to be that. I want to be what Joel Myrowitz does. You know, I want to be that, like, wherever he is, he's taking photographs. I mean, his, his book is called Where I Find Myself because that's how he photographs. It's, it's, it's Cape Light. It's street photography. It's, it's portraits on eight by tens. It's still life on his table. You know, it's self-portraits during lockdown. Wherever he finds himself, he can take a competent photograph. And that's the kind of photographer I want to be, which means doing stuff that I, isn't the strongest string on my bow. Right. And that's okay. That's fine. Well, I would imagine even, even though you've spent, you know, a number of years doing street I would imagine the closeness or the intimacy of some of the streets in York, you have to change up your, your composition a bit because it's, it's tighter quarters, isn't it? Yeah. Tighter quarters. Plus I've switched from a 28 mil to a 40 mil with this new Ricoh GR3X, mm-hmm. uh, which is more my focal length. Honestly, I've always been a 35 mil person. So 40 mil is definitely closer to my comfort zone, but yeah, I mean, so I've gone from 28 mil in London to 40 mil in York when I'm out shooting. So yeah, wow. tighter quarters, longer focal length. Yes, it's going to change things. And I'm not worried about that. I'm excited about that because I can always take that 28 mil back down to London and do the same. I'm practiced at that. I, that's never going to leave me that skill. It's always there. But now it's time to work on new things so I can strengthen this and have something else that I can do. Um, and I want all of it, you know. I, I want to I be able to go to villages with an 85 mil and, and be able to produce good photographs in those circumstances. I... I, I want, I, I'd love to be the kind of photographer who you can put whatever camera you happen to have on you in my hand in whatever context we're in and give me 15 minutes and I'll come back with something interesting because that feels like a good photographer to be. That doesn't mean I don't specialize because I still think of myself as more a portrait photographer, but I want to be able to do it all, at least to a proficient level. Uh, I think too many of us kind of lean on the one trick we found and sort of go, well, I don't need to develop anymore because I'm, people think I'm really good at this one thing and that's what they know me for and I'm done. That's fine if that's works for you, but that's not at all what I want to do. I want to, I want to be able to do a bit of everything, you know I mean? And, and I've spent time, I was a product photographer for seven years. I know how to do that. You know, that's never going to leave me. I don't do it anymore, but I could tomorrow. If you asked me to, I could do it tomorrow. Um, and it's always something I've got in the back pocket now. And I want to try all the others as well. I want to try landscape. I'm not, not good at it at all. It's really not a strong suit for me. But I want to find a way that I can do it, a version of it that, that, that fits me because it's just another skill I want to have. Why wouldn't I want all of them? Why wouldn't I want to try everything? Subscribe to Jeffrey Sidoris Everything in your favorite podcast app to get episodes of Deep Natter, 
process-driven, and everything else I release all in one feed. If you like what you hear and would like to help others find it, consider leaving a review or a rating wherever you listen and sharing it on social media. You can support what I do more directly by tapping the donate button at the top right corner of my website at jeffreysadoris.com. That's J-E-F-F-E-R-Y-S-A-D-D-O-R-I-S.com. You know, there are real world expenses to producing these shows and your financial support really does help. So thank you. Connect with Sean on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Tuck. That's S-E-A-N-T-U-C-K. On his website at seantucker.photography or by searching for Sean Tucker on YouTube. If you'd like to connect with me on Twitter and Instagram, you'll find me at Jeffrey Sidoris. If you'd like to ask us a question, offer feedback, or send us an audio note, you can email us at deepnatter at gmail.com. The music and effects in this episode are from Artlist, which is a terrific resource for filmmakers, YouTubers, and podcasters. They've got vocal and instrumental tracks from virtually every genre, and if you use the link in the show notes, you can get two months free when you sign up for an annual subscription. As always, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate your time, and we hope you'll come back for the next one.